again, I, I told you that it's uh, my understanding as I've seen it, and a lot of people might agree with this. I, I don't see very many places where people are teaching about the grace of God. It's funny, we talk about it all the time, but we never really teach it. And, uh, and I, I thought here, as we were looking at the Bible Institute, I mean, shouldn't, if it's important, shouldn't we actually delve into it <laughs> instead of just talking about it in passing? And so that's what we're going to try to do here. And I hope on the end of this that you're going to have a real good understanding of what does God mean by grace, that it's going to be defined and you're going to have a good understanding so that when we get to the beam of seat judgment, you're not going to say, those people over there at Grace Bible they didn't tell me about grace. <laughs> they had the name grace on their name and they wouldn't even talk about it. <laughs> so hopefully you won't be able to blame us about it. I want to start off with this quote from Harry Ironside because he was talking about how someone's able to overcome the sin nature. And you and I, we understand that the only way that we're going to be able to overcome our sin nature is by grace. Now, I really think that a lot of the problems that people are experiencing in and outside the church is because of, I mean, there are very simple issues. First of all, I think the sin nature is a big part of it, of what the problems that people are having, right? You can couch it and call it whatever you want to call it and put a fancy name on it, but a lot of it goes back to spiritual issues, the sin nature being the primary one. And so people are, are pondered through life about how to overcome this. So Harry Einstein, he had this. I don't know if you know Harry Einstein. He's a, a real good Bible teacher back in the day. Um, he did a few allegorizations in his time, but he was pretty good in his... Memorial Church. Oh, is it really? Okay. He had a TV program, too. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, he, I just thought this was interesting as an introduction here, and he has this quote in one of his commentaries. He says, The moment a sinner believes the gospel, his responsibility as a child of Adam under the judgment of God is over forever. But that very moment, his responsibility as a child of God begins, and he has a new nature that craves what is divine. But he soon discerns or discovers that his carnal nature has not been removed nor improved by the conversion to God. Banned from this fact arises many trying experiences. It often comes as a great shock when he realizes that he has a nature capable of, uh, of the very kind of vileness and this is really, it's stumbling to a lot of believers. And they don't know how to deal with this. So what do you do? You put on a good show on the outside, and then you just cover up the rest of it. Or as someone says, if the Lord came to your house today, it would be like somebody going to your house, and you know, everybody has this closet at their house, right, where you just throw everything in. Or is that just me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you know, and that's what we kind of do spiritually. Just pack everything in one closet, right? And they says, if the Lord came to your house and opened that closet, what would it smell like in there? <laughs> it would be atrocious, right? But, you know, you have that in grace. How do you deal with this issue of the sin nature is what he's talking about here. And he says he is rightly horrified and may be tempted to question the reality of his regeneration and his justification before God. Well, clearly you can see that. Now, we have people today who are teaching spiritual perfection. They, do you know that there are people who actually have the audacity to teach that they don't have a sin nature? There are people who, who with a straight face, are teaching this. Are you, and you ask yourself, well, what about the sins that you invariably are engaging in? What are those? Oh, they're just mistakes. They're <laughs> not really sins. Those are just bad habits. Right. They're not really sin. But that's not what God calls them. So people are horrified by this. And how can a holy God go on with one who has a nature as this? Well, that's a good question. Right. And at some point, all of us ask ourselves that question. You see yourselves of who you are. and You say, well, how does God even deal with me? I am a wretched individual. And so uh, if he tries to fight sin in the flesh, he is probably defeated. And I would take probably out. You will be defeated. If you try to fight the sin nature from your own flesh, you're going to lose every time. And I, I think this is what actually frustrates a lot of believers. I used to observe, you know, when I was younger, that they would have the altar call in churches. I don't know if, how many of you guys are familiar with that. And I used to observe as a kid, 
you would have the same people coming down to the altar call Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. And you could tell that they were in intense misery. But they would come down and it seemed like they had a respite from it. People would pray for them and they had a respite from it. But the very next Sunday, here they are again with the same problem. And they couldn't, they could, it's almost like they were in a trap or a prison and they couldn't be set free from it. And there's a lot of believers who are in that same situation. And so he says that uh, you're probably going to be defeated. And I would say you are going to be defeated if you don't live by grace. I guarantee if you don't live by grace, you are being defeated right now. And so he says, and he learns by bitter experience what Philip of um, Michalachton, I think that's right, Luther's friend, put so tersely, old Adam is too strong for young Philip. As you live in this old position in Adam, you know, when we, before we were saved, God, we were in a position in Adam. All, everybody who was bo- are born into this world, I said this in a class once, and someone got insulted because they think, well, my little grandkid isn't. I'm sorry. Even as we look at little Cohen, his sin nature is pretty ripe. <laughs> you can see it. You can see it all over the place, right? I'm sorry, Cohen. <laughs> and you don't have to teach it, right? And so he goes on. Happy is the young convert if at this crisis he comes under sound scriptural instruction instead of falling into the hands of spiritual charlatans. And, you know, um, this is what is happening. And I, wouldn't, I, don't, I don't know that there are charlatans because I think that there are people who are teaching things and they believe that what they're teaching is right and they don't know any better, right? And they, and they are intentionally people, teaching people things that are really hurting them. I don't think that they know. I, I would hope that they don't know or believe that what I'm teaching, that I'm going to set forth to teach something to someone that's going to actually do them harm. I think a lot of it, was out of, is, a lot of, it is out of ignorance. And I think, um, and I have seen, one of the problems is a lot of bad doctrine is passed along, not by people studying the Bible themselves, it's by people listening what, to what other people have said about the Bible instead of studying the Bible themselves. And, and, and then, so you just keep perpetuating the same untruth. And I think that's what's happening. And so, uh, who will set him to seeking the elimination of the fleshly nature and death of the carnal mind. And that's where we are in a lot of instances. And so a lot of people are trying. Uh, they have a lot of things, 10 things you can do to make your life better. Right? I mean, I'm talking about outside the church. I'm talking about inside the church. 10 ways to make your marriage better. Five ways to satisfy or make your husband or your spouse happy. All of these different rules. Well, is it, wouldn't it be better to really attack the problem at its source? How about how to live by grace? That would really take care of all of it. Right? Uh, and so he says that so you can, people have fallen under the hands of these kind of people who are teaching things like this. And if he follows their advice... He will be led into a quagmire of uncertainty. Isn't that where a lot of uh, believers are today? They don't even know who they are or what they are or where they're going. And it's really sad. And dazzled by the delusive will-o'-wisp of possible perfection in the flesh. And this is where a lot of believers are. Trying to make ourselves righteous in the flesh by what we do. Trying to justify ourselves to people, right? I've got to show you how righteous I am. And all of the things that I do is not coming as a direction of who I am in the Holy Spirit, but I'm trying to justify myself to show you how righteous I am. Look how righteous I am. Look at what I can do. Look at all of these things that I'm doing and just fill in the gaps. Most of Christendom is filled with this. It's filled with this. And so, uh, and so they would try to make this perfection in the flesh and will perhaps flounder for years in the bog of fantasism and self-torture. I, I just think this is interesting, the word that he used there, self-torture. 
Because when you and I are not living by grace, I've seen believers so miserable. I mean, just absolutely miserable to the core. And they don't know why. They are in a prison where the, the, um, the door is unlocked. And they have, don't even know how to open the door and walk out. The door has already been unlocked and they don't know how to even open it. And so, and, they're, and notice before reaching the rest that remains for the people of God. So notice the rest. There is a rest for the people of God today. You and I can rest from our labors. And the saddest point about this dispensation, because it is actually supposed to be characterized by it, very few people are at rest. They never experience it. And I think that this why this dispensation is going to end in failure. People would rather live by some kind of rule and justify themselves to other people than to live by the provision that God has provided. And it's really not that complicated. And so Lewis Berry Chafer said this in contrast to that. And this is his book on grace. I think it's one of the best books you can get on grace. Lewis Berry Chafer, you can tell when you read his writings, is a guy that was really spirit-led. I mean, some of the things that he writes, you just say, how did this guy un understand this? You just see the Holy Spirit and some of his conclusions and, and that he came up with. And if you read uh, any and pick up some of his writings, which there's many, I mean, it's just, he's just, he really understands what this issue of grace is about. Now, notice what he says here. The unsaved preacher or teacher being able to comprehend, notice what he says here, and this is a problem in the church. The unsaved preacher, there's unsaved preachers? <laughs> Did you know that? <laughs> there's unsaved preachers and our teacher. Being, un, being able to comprehend only the ethical teachings of Scripture. How many times have you seen people, that's all the Bible is to them. It's just an ethical book, a moral book that tells you how to live right or wrong. And that's really it. And if you turn on the radio, and I used to listen to it when I was going to work every morning, I don't know why I did it. I think I was pretty sadistic, but I would, I would expose myself to it. And some of the stuff you would hear, you would just want to bump your head against the dashboard and just say, this is craziness. Does this person not understand that this is mitigating against other scripture that is taught? And it's like they, they don't even understand that it's there. So, yeah, you could see this. The ethical teachings of scripture is living proof of the truthfulness of the divine testimony. He cannot see the kingdom of God. He sees nothing of the glories of divine grace. How many times do you hear people preaching and you just understand that they, they don't understand what grace is? They don't even have a clue what grace is. And you know the thing that gets me more than anything, and Scott and I have talked about this and others. <coughs> you know why people find and follow something that is true or a person that is true? How popular they are. Did they write a book? Oh, it must be true. So you put our guys up against some of these other guys out there with big names. Who are you? And by the way, how many people attend your church? <laughs> That's a church? You call it a church? That's just a Bible study. <laughs> a little get together. That's all you got there, right? And people, but this is important because in Christendom, people are measured by their name, how big their church is, what they've accomplished. It has nothing to do with whether they're, what they're saying is true. Like I told you, and I'll say his name, Rick Warren, who is one of the most popular pastors in this country, has done more to damage the church than any single person I know of in my lifetime. Any single person that I know of in my lifetime, this man has done more to damage the church of God than any single pastor I know of in my lifetime. 
And, and I, that's not hyperbole. And so notice, and so you have these guys, I don't know, he's just, and, and so he cannot see the kingdom of God. He sees nothing of the glories of divine grace, the things of the Father, the things of Christ, the things of the Spirit, the things to come. He blindly ignores every dispensational division in the word of God and is therefore free within himself to draw material from the kingdom teachings of Christ and from the law of Moses while constructing his world improvement sociological theories, which he imposes on a Christ rejecting world. That pretty much sums it up, right? <laughs> I don't think you can. He said a mouth point and he pretty much covers what the problem is. And so what we're going to see as we continue to go here is that you, you, very few people are actually teaching the grace of God. Very few. Because what they're doing is they're teaching a hybrid of law and grace together. And you see it. Um, and so back to our um, outline on page one. And so grace resolves the problem of the believer uh, grace provides the power to overcome the fallen nature and uh, for, to provide the, be, uh, the believer a good conscience. The believer who is simply accepts God's provision by faith is the one able to operate in a manner that God's, God desires. And so this is not complicated. This is not some complicated construct. All you have to do is avail yourself to live in those provisions that God has provided. Allow the Holy Spirit to work it out in your life. And you would be able to live by grace and be in the, play, in the position of you doing those things that are well-pleasing to God. This is not the quantum physics that we're doing here. It's very simple. A kid can understand it. And so human effort cannot provide the power for operation today. The Mosaic law cannot provide the power for operation. Grace is God's operating system today that enables a believer to live a manner that is well-pleasing to him. No amount of adherence to law can replace grace. Now, do you realize, and this is a scripture, that this is a statement that we could prove from scripture, but do you know if I got up in certain churches around this world and said this, I would be branded a heretic? Do you know what they would call me? Antinomian. It's funny what people do in the world system when they want to force people into doing a certain behavior, they call you names. They just don't realize, I don't care. I really don't care. You call me anything you want to call me as long as it's, you're saying that I, that I understand that I'm telling the truth. But these names are meant to force you back into the accepted mode. And a lot of people don't want to be called that. Who wants to be called antinomian? You know what they're saying if you're antinomian? You're just lawless. You believe in anything. That grace, you could do whatever you want to do. And so they use that. And a lot of people do. And, it, and it's effective because there's a lot of people who won't teach grace because they don't want to be branded antinomian. And so what do they do? They throw in law teaching along with grace to cover it. To make sure I'm not labeled antinomian. It sounds silly, doesn't it? But do you know that that's actually what people are doing? And so many, however, believe that the law produces the power for the believer to operate. Now, I read you Lewis Perry Chafer's statement there, <coughs> but note a bit below that. He said, even uh, some who do acknowledge also insist upon obedience to the Mosaic law. So this uh, type of theology had... Um, Enforced upon many saints a hybrid of law and grace. Now, I don't know if any of you are familiar with J.I. Packer, but there, he's a very um, uh, famous guy, more famous than anybody here will ever be. And but he's he's got books, and so he's got a lot of books, and so he's a reformed guy. But notice what he says in one of his books, and the name of the book is "Keeping the Ten Commandments." Well, he's telling you there what he thinks about it. <laughs> Packer argues that keeping the Ten Commandments is key to holy living. Did you know that, Scott? 
And so he just brings it, he just puts it right out there. And he's not the only one. I would, I would submit to you that ma the majority of the people in Christendom today are teaching and would adhere to what J.I. Packer is saying. I think the amount of people who would actually adhere to the fact that it's grace and grace alone, it's very small. It's very small. And so notice what Packer says here in his book. He says, living the Ten Commandments is the theme of this book, um, not ant, but and the truth we must learn from the story of the young rich ruler is that only life wide repenting from one self-serving lifestyle to date and through humble, re humbly receiving and trusting Jesus Christ as one's Lord and Savior and through heart changing re uh, regeneration by the Holy Spirit <coughs> will commandment keeping ever pass beyond formal outward role play to become a substantial concern for one's inward life and stemming from a truly God-fearing, God-honoring heart. Now this sounds like lofty language, doesn't it? You know what I say to this language? <laughs> it's nonsense. It's absolute nonsense. But J.I. Packer says it. Why, it's got to be true. I hope that you never take what men say but that you validate it from Scripture. And you come to understand that this is what Scripture says. Don't fall into the game that is being played today, that it has to be said by somebody who is famous for it to be true. This is why the church is in the trouble it's in. And so we know from, from Scripture that there is no substitute for grace. There is absolutely no substitute for grace. None. It's God's grace plus nothing else. Nothing else. And so this class will wholly focus upon the importance of grace and why it, it alone is sufficient to provide for believers to live a life that is well-pleasing to God. And so what we want to uh, hope to do is to show you what Scripture says that in order that the Holy Spirit will guide you through the narrowness of all of this noise that is out there, that is untrue, that you might be able to live a, a life that is um, led by the Spirit and is well-pleasing to God. And that, that will make a huge difference. And so we start, uh, our first uh, delve into it is uh, grace versus favor. Grace versus favor. So we want to explain something that's very important is that in the Old Testament, we're going to look at a word, and this word uh, kin is used in the Old Testament, and it's translated quite often as favor, as favor. Now, why are we going to look at this word, and why is it important? Because in the Old Testament, God allowed the Old Testament saints, or really, you would even go, now I, I, and I'm going to say this, that it's actually you have the Old Testament that's dealing with those under law, and then there was actually those who were before law, who weren't under law. You realize that. From Adam to Moses, those people were not under law. But even going back into that era, that God dealt with them in a way that's different than today. It was grace, but what we're going to see is God allowed them to participate in what he was doing. And what we're going to see with this word is that they had this idea of favor in which they could earn things by participating in what God was doing with them. But this is very important to understand. And we can point it out and we can make it very clear. That it's very clear to see from Scripture. When you get over into the New Testament, God's going to transition into doing something else. And it's going to be, as Paul said, no longer out from works, completely apart from anything that you could ever do. So let's look at it. And so the word kin is uh, defined as, and I give you several definitions, and this is from Wilson's Old Testament Word Studies. It is a free and spontaneous willingness to bestow good on him that is destitute of it, either in a way of kindness or in a way of compassion, Hence, to show favor, mercy, pity, or an act of uh, previous goodwill. The word excludes all ideal of merit and, desert, uh, and the object of free favor. Um, Gesenius, 
to be inclined toward, hence to be favorably inclined toward uh, favor to someone, to be gracious to, to, um, to be a, to a pity. And so then um, Herbert Wolf gives this definition, finding favor means gaining approval or acceptance or special benefits or blessings. Now, I ironically think that there, a lot of your Pentecostals seem to understand this more than other people, right? How many times have you gone, or maybe some of you have not been in a Pentecostal church, right? But they understand this concept that I found favor with God, right? How? Because I did something. And they understand that you could earn favor with God in a lot of ways. And so here, I think Wolf gets a little close to this. And notice he says, there is also a close association among favor and grace and mercy which are sometimes used to translate the same Hebrew and Greek words. Um, the favor that human beings receive from God depends on his good pleasure and is often extended in response to prayer or righteous living. Those who walk in blameless, such as Noah or Moses, receive favor and honor from the Lord. Now, as we, as we, before we get into an example of this, I want to give you this illustration, and it's not an allegory, Dan, because it's not first scripture. It's just a, it's a, it's a illustration. My grandson, Braylon, who now is uh, in college, but when he was a little boy, he used to come and visit, and he, he used to like to go out and work in the yard with me. So we would go out and work in the yard, and I told Braylon, you cannot get any Gatorade until I see sweat. <laughs> I want to see sweat. <laughs> and so he would work up a storm, and, and uh, then he Grandpa, see the sweat? <laughs> I'm sweating, I'm sweating. And so we would sit down and we'd have our Gatorade and he'd say, Grandpa, we really worked hard, didn't we? <laughs> and what did he do? Well, one time we were moving a, um, the cleaning out the shed and we had this big board and, and I was carrying, it was a two by six, I think it was, and I was carrying it and he put his hand on the end. <laughs> and he says, Grandpa, we really worked hard, didn't we? I said, we really did, Braylon. <laughs> we really worked hard. Well, who was doing the work? <laughs> you might be right. Uh, no, you're messing up my illustration, Janet. <laughs> I was doing the work, but Braylon got credit for participating in that. You see, it really wasn't anything that they did. God allowed them to participate in the work and they got credit for it. That's how I would describe favor. You see, you can never say at any time that people did anything that was worthy of what God wanted to done. God still has to do the work, but he allowed them to participate in it. Which is a little different from what we will see today. And so notice this word Ken is used 67 times in the Old Testament. Uh, the verbal form is used as an act of, of showing gra uh, graciousness. Uh, then you have the adjectival form. It's used 13 times of having pity or showing mercy. Um, it's used in the noun form to show favor, or it's translated favor into King James uh, on several occasions. And notice, you'll see that it's distinct from the word ratsan, which means pleasure or delight or goodwill. And it's used that way. Um, I just wanted to show you um, a couple of illustrations. And I will get down into some more of them. Um, but look at Genesis, if you would, chapter 6. I saved some more for, to show you the contrast um, down in the, um, in the, when we get to uh, making a distinction between grace and favor. But I just want to show you one right now. In Genesis chapter 6, and notice in verse 7. So, here in the context here, and this is an interesting thing, so a lot of people would understand that what is going on today is Satan has always, and I think he, he's continually trying to um, uh, involve himself in the gene pool of mankind. Here I think he was doing it because he wanted to stop Christ from coming. right? And so what did he do? These angels came down and they took on human bodies, which angels, I believe, still can do today. But there were certain angels who took on human bodies, and they misused these human bodies. And they had relationships with women. Now, talking about allegory, 
we can prove this from the text. But there are some people who have gone to allegory and said, No! Angels cannot cohabitate with women! Well, we'll read it here and we'll see what it says. <laughs> you, you, be the, you be the decider of it. Um, and then we'll, we, I mean, we can prove this in so many different ways, as I've told you before, and we have done that. And we, won't, we don't labor to do that today. But you can just look at the context here and decide for yourself. I will say that this option of letting it say what it says is better than the option they came up with, which is, no, there was a generation or a line called the Sons of Seth that was a pure line, and that's who it's talking about. Well, now, as we read through here, can you do me a favor? Can you write down if you see Sons of Seth actually in this context? Let me know if you do, but I'm getting old and maybe my eyes can't, <laughs> can't see that. Verse 1, and it came to pass that when... <laughs> Men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and the daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair. Um, they were pleasant. Now, we, here's the issue. That sons of God, as you look in the Old Testament, and one of the arguments is that um, the sons of God is talking about people. Well, sons of God in the Old Testament, do you know it's never used in the Old Testament of people? Not one single solitary time. Every time you see it used, it's used of, or you look over in Job, it's used of angels or spirit beings. It's not used of people. And so notice it says, The sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair, and they took of them wives of all they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for he, is all, he also is flesh, and yet his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. And there were giants in the earth in those days. Now, don't disassociate chapter, uh, verse 4 from 3, because I think there's a correlation. And so I think that what happened here is the product of this cohabitation produced um, abnormal beings. Um, Don likes to call, talk about them a lot, the Nephilim, the Rephaim, uh, a lot of them. And some of them were of abnormal size. We have the record of it in Scripture. And some people believe we have the record of it in, in um, anthropology, though they don't want to let you know that. Um, obviously, if they existed, there has to be some uh, uh, archaeological evidence of it, too. But, you know, that's just scuttlebutt. I don't know. But there were giants in the earth in those days. And also after that, when the sons of God came unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them. Um, the same became mighty men, which were of old, men of a renown, or men of renown, or men of a reputation. Now, why is this important? He's really, as he's writing here, he's setting the context for what was going on. And so you had these spirit beings that were cohabitating with women, and as in any society, people want to get in on the end thing. Once you create an ap ap appetite for a thing and everybody knows this is what everybody is doing. Everyone runs toward it. And this is what was happening here. And it was even more significant in this time because if you could have one of these big hunks, it's like everybody today wanting to have an NBA player, right? <laughs> or a football player. If you can have one of these guys, particularly in an agricultural society, you wouldn't, you, everybody would name themselves Noah. You would be, re be able to rest. You wouldn't have to do any work. And, uh, and I think this is what was going on. And it, this was how the atmosphere was set. And, and you can find this again. It's substantiated in other areas of scripture. Jude, first and, um, second Peter uh, backs up this, this, uh, this literal understanding of scripture. And so notice in verse 5. God saw the wickedness of man was great upon the earth, and that the imagination of the thoughts of his heart were con only continue, uh, evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he uh, made man on the earth and grieved him to his heart. Now, why is all of this backdrop significant to what we're coming to? Because there was a man and his family that didn't engage with the rest of the world in this. They didn't get caught up in it. And his name was Noah. And that's why he's getting ready to say what he says here in verse 7. And the Lord said, I will destroy man from whom, excuse me, 8, from whom I have, uh, I will destroy man from, 
whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, and the creeping things, and the fowls of the air, for it repented me that I have made them. Now, I don't think that it was just animals, uh, I mean, uh, people here. I believe also, as you see it in verse 12, it was also animals. Now, I, I am of the opinion, and I, I would disagree with, I mean, people can disagree with this, but I think this is where you got a lot of your uh, beings, abnormal beings, and I believe dinosaurs, that came from this. I believe this is where it happened, and I think you can put it right here, and I think that there's enough evidence to substantiate that. Because as you, as you go down into verse 12, he's going to say, all flesh, not just human beings, all flesh corrupted its way. All flesh. And so notice he says in verse 8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And so there's our word kin in the ideal of, of, um, of uh, grace. It's translated grace. It's actually the word for kin. It's the word favor. And so what we're going to see as we move forward here a little bit is that you're going to see that this favor is, is matched with a word called matzah in the Hebrew. And that word matzah means it's going to have the idea you have this favor and you're going to see that how did he find it? He looked for it and he found it. And I think because he refused to engage in what was going on in the world at that time that he found favor with God. And so if back to your outline here, um, just to take a break here and then we'll come back to this point. Um, and so the word for grace in the Greek is the word caress. And so um, and you see it as an example in um, Titus 2.11, which is going to be a really important verse that we're going to uh, spend some time in. And so you see, uh, concerning this grace, that God's grace, and, well, we'll give you a definition here. I put a, probably should put the definition first. But let's look at the definition first, then we'll jump back. And so the definition here by Kenneth Weiss, he gives this definition of grace. It implies a favor freely done without claim or expectation of return and finding its only motive in the bounty and free heartedness of the giver. <clears throat> But in pagan Greece, this favor was only conferred upon a friend, not upon an enemy. When caress is taken over, uh, taken over into the terminology of the New Testament, it takes an, an infinite leap forward and acquires an added meaning which is never had in pagan Greece. For the favor God did at Calvary's cross, he did not for a race that loved him, but which hated him. And so that's an involved way, but it's apart from anything that you do. Now, let's look at a scriptural definition of it in Romans chapter 11 and 6. It's a kind of a stilted definition, but I think it gets us there. In Romans 11 chapter 6, I mean verse 6. You know what I meant. Romans 11, 6. Um, and so here you have, and I think Paul is talking about Israel and how there's a remnant of Israel that a God has that are elect, and, and, um, and, and he's going to say that this election of the nation is by grace. That it's not, a, it's not according to anything that they've done. And so notice what he says here. And we'll pick it up at verse 4. But what says the answer of God unto him? I have reserved unto myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. And so just as a note here, um, I, we have termed this the Elijah complex. Never get the Elijah complex where you think you're the only one left, right? And you have people and believers, oh, everybody's turned from the Lord, and there's hardly anyone else that's around. Well, God has people all over the place, and just because you don't see them don't mean that they're not. And this is what he had to tell Elijah. You think you're the only one? I've got 5,000 people who have not bowed the knee to Baal. You're not the only one. And I really believe that that's the case today. Notice in verse 5. Even so then, at this present time also, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. Now notice he's going to tell you what grace is, and I think it's a very stilted way of how he says it, but we get the definition here. And if it is by grace, it is no more, now see that word of, out from works. And really he uses the word there, it's no longer out from works. So here's works, 
Here's grace. The two are incompatible. It's not out from works. There's nothing about grace that comes out from works. And I will say that what we're going to prove, it doesn't not only not come out for works at initial salvation, it doesn't come out from works even as we live in our present tense salvation today. Grace is disassociated from works. God is not having to do things for you based upon what you potentially can do. And how many people have done that in their life? Where they base things in their relationship to God. Oh God, okay, I've been doing good now. Oh, I made a mistake. Oh God, you, I'm sure that you've turned away from me now. Isn't that what that altar call is about? I really believe a lot of those people that come up to that altar call think that they've been unsaved now because they did something that was wrong and they got to start all over. And so he said, it is not out from works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it is no more of grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. There's work and there's grace. And they don't intertwine. Now, what we're going to see is there are works that are done from grace, but there are not works that are done to get grace. You see that? When you're filled by the Spirit and the Holy Spirit's working in your life, you will do works, according to Ephesians 2.10. But do you know those works are the works that the Holy Spirit leads you to do? I think that a lot of the works that people are doing today are works that they're making up. And they try to decide in their mind how to do things to show God how righteous they are or to show other people how righteous they are. And it's not really works that God wants anyway. And we'll see that when we get to the Bema Seat Judgment. That those works are going to be nothing. They're going to grow up in a blaze of glory. Um, God takes, uh, and so through grace, God takes a lowly man and shapes him for his purposes. And you can see this. Look at Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 8. Well, so let's start with 1 Corinthians uh, uh, 15, 9 through 10. As we go back through there and we can look at that. 1 Corinthians uh, 15, 9 through 10. And so we see an example in the Apostle Paul. And so he constantly was reminded of who he was. And he did not think that he deserved the grace of God. Well, he's right. None of us do. You know, it's really not until you really see yourself for who you are that you really appreciate the grace of God. And I think some of us are fooling ourselves. We don't think that we're that bad. And we have been told by the world that we're not as bad as we think we are. You know what? I think it's worse. And that's why we're shocked. And so we try to balance the scales because we think we're not that bad, so we can do something to balance the scales. And so notice Paul, he saw it, and he says in verse 8, And last of all, he was seen of me also of one born out of due time, for I am the least of the apostles, that am not meet to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But the grace from God, uh, but by the grace from God, I am what I am. And his grace was bestowed upon, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. And so Paul says, it's by the grace of God. Here you have a murderer, a guy who was chasing down Christians, murdering them, and not only murdering them, he tells you, uh, as he's talking to Agrippa, that some of the things that he was doing to these Christians, that he was doing things to compel them to blaspheme, to say things about God that wasn't true. That God saved him. He didn't look for Paul to change. Had Paul changed when he met him on the road to Damascus? No. This is one of the insidious things of the... Um, Sinner's prayer. 
Anybody found the sinner's prayer in the Bible yet? I'm still looking. Let me know if you find it. You, you won't find it. And it's interesting to me how different it is every time you hear it. But, you know, you've got to come up with all your sins and repent and confess all your sins. Then you can be saved. And you've got to show sorrow. Got to be grief. And I don't know how many tears you have to cry, but there's got to be tears in order for you to be saved. Then you might be saved based upon that. And you don't see that in Scripture. That's just a cruel thing they're doing to people. It's cruel. What they're doing to people, it's cruel. And so, uh, and so you see Paul on the road to Damascus hadn't done anything. The Lord, he encountered the Lord on the road to Damascus. The Lord did the work. Not Paul. And so notice in uh, Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 8. Ephesians 3 and verse 8. Uh, we'll start at verse 1 and we'll read down. Uh, for this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, to you Gentiles, since you've heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which is given to me to you, would, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote unto you afore in a few words, whereby when you read you may understand my knowledge of the mystery of, and I would say, the Christ. And that was a mystery that Paul uh, revealed, um, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as is now revealed unto the holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. Wherefore, I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God, given unto me by the effectual working of his power, unto me am less than least of all the saints. Um, and so you see this, uh, where he's saying, if you had the least saint, I'm even worse than that. Right? Paul didn't see himself as being all of that. And uh, a lot of believers today, they think that, well, God's getting a good one when they're saved. And can I tell you, when God saved us, We'll, we'll see it when we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I hate to be, disappoint you, but very few people that God choose that were on the high end of the spectrum. You can imagine all people being at a dump heater. It's like you're going to the junkyard and you're getting all of this trash that they've dumped. And the trash part is what he's chose from. It's all trash. Now... Paul has given the picture that he dug to the very bottom of that trash and got him. How's that for your psyche? Well, that's some positive teaching there, isn't it? <laughs> that really will help your psyche, won't it, to know that. Go tell your friends that and uh, see what they say. And he says, I'm less than least of all the saints is this grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles. The unsearchable riches of Christ. Just think about this. God chose a guy that was no good to use him in his plan and purposes to reach the Gentiles. Do you know he could have used angels to do what we're doing? He didn't need people. Really doesn't need people. I think they would have probably done a better job. But that he would use frail fallen man to do his plan. You know why he can do that? Because he's the one that has the power and he provides the power for operation and it's totally by grace. Really doesn't need us. And, we, and I hope that on the end of this that you would, you would concur to that. Now notice uh, scripture shows that God is the source of grace. Um, you see that in Romans 5, 15. Romans 5.15. And so Paul, um, just the book of Romans is just an um, incredible book uh, in which there is a dissertation that is being given as Paul is reasoning through and he's showing what God did from start to finish. And he starts off and he's implicating as a lawyer in the courtroom 
uh, he's making the argument for why we need grace. And he starts off with chapter 1 and says, the Gentiles are no good. He goes on to chapter 2 and he says, the Jews are no good. He goes on to chapter 3 and he says, here's the summation of it all. There ain't anyone any good. We're all horrible. What did he say? All have sinned and keep on falling short of the glory of God. And this is totally the opposite of what man is telling us today. Man is telling us that, oh, you're not that bad. If you're bad, it's because of your parents. Or if you're bad, you're, it's the neighborhood you came from. Or you didn't have the right circumstances. That's why you're bad. No, Scripture says you're bad because we were bad from the beginning. And what is that song? Bad to the bone. <laughs> and it's probably even deeper than that, right? <clears throat> Notice in verse 1, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into his grace, wherein we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we rejoice in tribulation, knowing that tribulation worketh patience. Uh, let's drop down a little bit in verse 12. It's where we want to go. Wherefore, by one man, sin came into the world, and death by sin, and death passed upon all men, for all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is a figure of him that was to come. But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For as by one man's offense the many be dead, much more by the grace from God and the gift by grace, which is by one man Jesus Christ, has abounded unto the many. There's a lot that is said in that verse. On the one hand, the offense of one man affects all men. But do you know that he narrowed the focus at the end of that, that verse? And he says, by the, um, by the, uh, that, and, and the gift by grace, which is uh, through one man, Jesus Christ, has abounded to the many. I hope you caught that. And I think it screams election. I really think it does. And so here you see the idea of grace and how grace is, is uh, uh, brought this about. Um, let's stop right there so we can ask questions. And then we'll deal with this. We'll circle back and we'll deal next week with favor versus grace and go back through some passages and show you how this worked with this idea of favor. So you have favor and you have grace. And then we'll see as they, we get to the New Testament how God uh, transitioned us from favor into grace. And we'll see that.